0: The STG podcast, and uh, today I'm again alone. And again, we are speaking about ALD. And the guest today is Simon Elliott. Is uh, well, uh, what do you say? I, see, I, I would say a simulation guy. But what would you would you say about yourself?
1: Uh, hello, and um, nice to be here. Um, yes, yeah, I do simulations of atomic layer deposition. I try to understand what's happening at the atomic scale by using computer simulations. So.
0: so well, I have a little bit of information about you here that I found that you were working in Tyndall National Institute. That's when I kind of knew you from, but now you change to Schrodinger that I don't really know what place it is. So do you want to I don't know, introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what you are doing, what you are doing, and whatever about yourself, something interesting. Yeah, sure. I um, did a PhD in quantum chemistry in uh, Karlsruhe
1: in Germany, and then I worked in Ireland in uh, doing simulations of surface science for some years in Trinity College Dublin, and then moved, as you say, to Tyndall National Institute, which is also in Ireland. And I'd be—I was working there for 15 years on this topic of simulating atomic layer deposition. Uh, so I've got experience in lots of different systems and lots of different approaches to try to understand what atomic layer deposition is. And then this year, I moved to a company called Schrodinger. Uh, this company does uh, computational chemistry. It produces software for doing computational chemistry. Obviously, it's named after the famous Erwin Schrodinger and Schrodinger's equation, because what we do in with this software is all atomic scale simulation of how um, uh, molecules bond with one another, how atoms bond, and and basically, you know, what's happening at that atomic level that you need the Schrodinger equation. So uh, in this company, I'm also working on atomic layer deposition and related uh, technologies that are needed for the semiconductor industry. So it's very much a continuation of what I was doing before, but now from the point of view of trying to have the best possible simulation tools. So Schrödinger is always actively developing our software, and we want to make it really suitable for these kind of questions in surface science, and technology, and the semiconductor industry. And so that's what we're going to try to do.
0: Okay, so that's actually interesting because it, so is. Can we define this, the Tyndall Inst- Institute some more on the academic side?
1: Yeah, so Tyndall National Institute is part of uh, the university in Cork, and it's a, a research institute there that is really focused on bridging academic to industry, commercialization, uh, works a lot with different companies. Uh, so it was a really good place to find out about that kind of interaction and, and learn about technology questions. It's um, all kind of focused on ICT hardware. So, say, the computers of the future, the networks of the future, uh, ranging all the way from, like, material science questions through to systems design, uh, sensors, information uh, technology in all its aspects really uh, as long as it's kind of hardware so we didn't really do software in Tindall National Institute but obviously as a computational scientist I used software and the type of software we used is now the type of software that
0: we sell in shirting okay so basically you went from using the software to actually use your expertise to make the software better and how do you find this transition from the more academic research to a more industrial-like application-oriented research? Yeah, it's it's been a fairly straightforward
1: transition, really, uh, because, like I say, to, in Tyndall, we were always working with companies anyway, and, yeah, all our research involved a collaboration with a company, um, so whether it was publicly funded research or directly funded by a company, it was, it was always building relationships with companies and trying to learn about their problems and how we could solve their problems. And that's very much the same thing now in, in my new role. Uh, so it's about listening to listening to the your, your research partner, really, whether that's an experimental group in an academic lab or a company. Um, as a simulation scientist, we're there to sort of back up and support and help them solve real life problems. You know, I'll never actually develop a new process for something. I'll never develop a new chemical myself, um, but I can give insights that will help other people do those things. So I'm very much uh, collaborating with those people. And that means listening to them and understanding what their problems are. And that, that means we can have a good relationship and actually get some good science out.
0: Okay, that's uh, yeah, that's actually interesting that we also work of course in our lab with some simulation people so they are the one that maybe tell to the more applied scientists what they should try because they already tried what could and not work. So this kind of skip some uh, some experiments that they already know that they might not work as intended. So it's Kind of to make life easier in a way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: yeah, so to move from uh, this small introduction to the topic of today, that we want to focus on the, of course, how to use simulation on the ALD. And again, I guess that if you get to this episode at this point, you should have listened to the previous two episodes introduction to ALD if you don't know what the technique is, and the second episode that was more about how do we measure ALD growth, so in this case we are more focusing actually on trying to understand uh, what happens on the surface what reactions are going and how this reaction might happen on the surface and in your case you use simulation because well, I don't think there is any other case where you really can know uh, how the chemistry actually goes on the surface, on the atomic scale.
1: Yeah, so, it's a very direct way of finding out what the atoms are doing Yeah, using these uh, quantum mechanical simulations.
0: Yeah, because we were discussing last week that yeah, there is a way to measure what's going on in the reactor, uh, the growth of the film, what uh, products are created by the reaction, how the film is changing but we cannot really probe uh, really on the surface on the atomic scale. So when we speak about the LD, it's always this kind of uh, theoretical image that we have. And like this reaction happens and then this other reaction happens, but we really need to understand how actually this works. Yeah. And so starting from there, like um, what uh, the st- state may very simple at the beginning to present, a, I would say either, Aluminum oxide deposition or zinc oxide, something like really two components and is in oxide that everybody knows. Uh, what happens at the surface during an ALD cycle? Uh,
1: yeah, So ALD, um, as you know, it's a, a surface limited process and it has this unique property that um, the same reaction happens everywhere on the substrate. And this really gives it its unique property that it can coat any substrate with a really thin layer. So we have a chemical reaction that happens once and then stops. That's the unique thing about ALD. Lots of other processes. If you keep supplying
0: chemicals, the reaction keeps happening. Reaction happens. That's the main difference happens. between ALD and CVD, basically. Yeah. yeah, so CBD will happen as long as you supply the chemicals to the system.
1: And so it's very dependent on the concentration of those chemicals and their temperature and their pressure and so on. With ALD, the the reaction happens once and then it stops. And it doesn't matter how much chemical you supply. To some extent, it doesn't matter what pressure the chemical is at. Um, It really, the reaction happens once and then stops. So if we understand that unique chemistry, uh, we can understand how ALD works and we can help to design new ALD processes. And I think you can probably see the main advantage of ALD then, um, which is that you can coat any kind of shape of substrate, because as long as the substrate sees the chemical once, it'll react once, and then it'll stop. So on all the the, the, the funny shapes and sizes and uh, all the surfaces of your substrate, they should all get this single atomic layer. That's the crucial thing about ALD. It's this atomic layer deposition on all um, substrates that are exposed to the chemical. So it all comes down to understanding that chemistry, this kind of unique chemistry where a very reactive chemical comes in and it sees the surface, and the surface is very reactive towards it, and they react together, and then it stops. The surface becomes really inert, and even then, though you're letting in this reactive chemical again, it doesn't react anymore with the surface. The surface has been passivated now. So You can see that's a kind of a curious chemistry that happens and then it stops. Um, So our understanding of it is sort of like a cartoon, really. I think that's the way it's always been sort of presented. And I guess with our simulations, we're trying to see is the cartoon correct and can we update the cartoon and, uh, you know, what are all the little quirks and details? And I suppose ultimately how to design these chemicals and how to understand which surfaces they react with and which ones they don't react with. So when I give the example...
0: This is, uh, yeah, uh, this is kind of... Uh, of course, you can get information about uh, your precursor, what what you need to, to do to make like better one or new ones, but also you kind of know uh, your reaction, to, will they work with any substrate or... Uh, how much can you know about if I do this on silicon? If I do this on an oxidized silicon? If I do this on certain metals or any other materials? Uh, like how much can the simulation tell me? Will will it work? Will it not work? Is it like what's the degree of approximation? If you want to say like that? Yeah, that's
1: that's exactly it want to understand exactly what substrates react and how we should prepare those substrates. And of course, if we can pattern those substrates, maybe we can get the ALD reaction to happen in one place and not in another place. That's the area of selective area, ALD. That's a really big growth area at the moment. So the, the example that's always used is uh, the ALD of alumina, so of aluminium oxide, AL2O3 and this is always done with the the reagent trimethylaluminium, nearly always, anyway. Um, It's a quite common process using trimethylaluminium. So that's an aluminium atom with three methyl groups on it. A methyl group is CH3. So um, there's three of these CH3 groups attached to the aluminium, and that's a really useful reagent. It's got a high vapour pressure. It's easy to get into the gas phase. And it reacts really violently with water. So, obviously, that means it's a little tricky to handle. You can't let it anywhere near the, the humid air in your lab. But it does mean that when it hits any kind of uh, remnant of water on the surface, it's going to react really fast. So, in this case, it's, it's hydroxyl groups, OH groups, which are like half of a water molecule. And when it sees a, a hydroxyl group, the proton from the hydroxyl group can attach to the CH3 to the methyl group, and form methane, right? CH4. So everyone knows methane, natural gas. It's a nice stable molecule. We pump it around our cities all the time. It's only when you you heat it and burn it that it actually reacts and forms a flame. So CH4 is a nice stable byproduct. And then you've knocked the, the CH3 group off, the aluminium, and the aluminium can now bond with the oxygen and form the the material that we want, which is alumina, Al2O3. So Al2O3 consists of lots of aluminium oxygen bonds. And a large amount of energy is given out when an aluminium oxygen bond is formed. So this is a really good reaction. You're forming stable products. It's going to happen quite quickly and violently. Uh, And so it has at least the first half of what we need for an ALD reaction. It has a violent reaction. It has a really reactive chemical trimethyl aluminium. Um, So then, does the reaction stop and why would the reaction stop? And in the normal cartoon uh, of atomic layer deposition, this isn't entirely clear. Uh, People show the reaction happening and then they show one of the methyl groups not reacting for some reason. Now they say either the the protons have run out, the the H groups, the the OH on the surface has run out, so it's just some CH3 groups left. Or they say that the CH3 can't leave the aluminium, because the aluminium won't let it. And actually, in our simulations, we've tried to work out why this is. Uh, Our simulations, and those of other people, have shown that actually the reaction becomes very slow eventually. That the aluminium can't lose its third CH3 group. Uh, It would do it energetically, probably, but it's a very slow reaction so we're starting so to find out then
0: when you say this. Uh, sorry uh, there's just a quick question uh, if you when you say that it's a slow reaction of course it's not really like what we say as slow like it's slow in which order of time um, that, that you'll get very
1: little of it taking place on a surface during your normal experiment okay. so maybe 1% of them would react in the Second or minute
0: long experiment that you carry out. So most of it remains. Okay, only. so if you let it react longer, it still takes a fairly long time, actually, like uh, maybe a second. Yeah, I don't know exactly. Uh, yeah, okay, but this would react. Yeah, okay, but, but that's.
1: Huge hmm. so, okay. so that's. With our simulations, we can start finding out why it is that that this chemical stops reacting with the surface. So then the surface becomes covered with these CH3 groups. And they make the surface passivated then. They make it inert, because as more of the trimethyl aluminium comes in, all it can see when it hits the surface are CH3 groups. And it doesn't see any more of the OH groups, the protons. And again there, the cartoon is that it's kind of like a forest, a forest of CH3 groups. And all the trimethylaluminium Cs are the the tops of the trees, and it can't access the ground beneath, which is where it needs to react. Um, And I think our understanding at the moment is that that's a bit of an oversimplified view. It's not just a matter of the, the, the space that these CH3 groups take up. They don't probably cover the surface particularly well. There probably are gaps. They probably can get through, but again, it's a very slow reaction when it does get through. So anyway, those are little subtleties, but that's the basic idea, that the surface becomes covered with uh, and becomes unreactive. And that's the end of that then. So it's reacted once, it's reacted with as many hydroxyl groups as it could, it's produced methane, but then it's stopped. And that's the end of that part of the ALD cycle. As you know, an ALD cycle has, has two phases. You let in one of the reagents, in this case trimethyl aluminium, and once that's finished, you stop, and then you purge out that gas And then in the second pulse, you let in the other reagent. In this case, it'll be water. Water is, as we know, very reactive with this trimethyl aluminium. So you pulse in the water, and the water now does the exact opposite reaction. It sees lots of CH3 groups, and it has lots of protons, so it can let those protons combine with the CH3 groups, produce methane, and again, the oxygen that's left behind combined with the aluminium, because that aluminium is now opened up available for reaction. You get that strong aluminium oxygen bond. And again, for some reason, that reaction has to stop. That's probably also a bit of a complicated question of why the water reaction stops, but it does. The water stops reacting with the surface. And again, you turn off the water pulse and purge out all the water from the reactor because you don't want it reacting with the gas phase with the next trimethyl aluminium. And that's one ALD cycle and it's finished then. Then you start again with trimethyl and aluminium. And in each of these cycles, then you're making new aluminium oxygen bonds. You're starting to build up a film. That's sort of the atomic scale view of how ALD works. As I say, it's a bit of a cartoon. As, as you start asking questions about it, you start reasoni- realising how little we know. And we know that it works. And there's a lot of experiments done in trying to find and check that it works that way. But...
0: Yeah, there's still lots of open questions, which is nice. So now that uh, basically uh, this is a little bit uh, kind of a weird reaction because the the precursor for the aluminum atom has three groups attached to it. And it might be like for the zinc, it it's uh, has only two groups. So it might be more straightforward or in a sense also to see that one reacts first and then only one is left for the next reaction with water and that should I would imagine react uh, easier considering that you don't have uh, maybe hidden groups or uh, I don't know hard to reach group.
1: But the chemistry it doesn't seem to matter. okay. It can lose, the, the, the trimethyl aluminium can lose one methyl or two methyls, but certainly not three. You probably get a mixture of species on the surface, all kinds of different, maybe
0: and two methyls. Of course, if, yeah, if, if you will lose all the three uh, groups, then you will not have the ALD reaction because then you cannot continue the cycle. Yeah, you would have an
1: exposed aluminium atom and that would probably react with an incoming trimethyl aluminium because they can form dimers. So that, that, that wouldn't be what we'd call ideal ALD. Um, diethyl zinc seems to be a, a, a lot harder to understand. Um, colleagues in, in your university and Alto University have looked at uh, simulating the diethyl zinc and water process. And they found lots of very high barriers, so slow reactions. it's It's proving very difficult to find the fast reaction that drives the diethyl zinc washer process forward. So it's actually a little bit more problematic. And um, zinc starts off in this having these two partners in diethyl zinc, so it's zinc two plus and it has two ethyl groups. But it needs to get a lot more partners in order to form uh, zinc oxide. Because zinc oxide, the zinc is surrounded by four oxygens. And how it does that isn't really very clear at the moment. So, diethyl zinc is still a bit of a problem in our understanding of how ALD works. As I say, there's lots of hidden unknown things. I mean, diethyl zinc and water is used all over the world, it's very, very straightforward. But it doesn't mean it's
0: completely understood yet. So uh, you're saying basically that we know that the aluminum uh, like oxide process is working very nicely and with very short passing times. So the time the precursors are in the chamber, they are very short. They are like 0.1 second and even less. Uh, but in the simulation, cannot see this fast reaction or the, rea- the reaction has n- are not fast, but somehow it continues anyway. In the diethyl-zinc case, yes, the
1: we, we haven't been able to find those fast reactions.
0: Okay, but in the aluminium, then the trimethyl-aluminium... We, we do have the reactions that are fast. Okay, yeah. Good, so basically, what... So now, this is the more uh, ALD side of that, and... Uh, but
1: that's just what? oxides.
0: You know? Yeah, 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 uh, of course I don't want to go to more complicated things than <laughs> we're never gonna finish this. <laughs>
1: but the nice thing is we can, with simulations we can, we can try more complicated chemistries. Many people would say that's quite a boring chemistry. That's just transferring a proton from from, one, from an oxygen to a carbon. And producing methane, you know, it's it's not a surprising chemistry or producing ethane. But there's some really neat chemistries that go on in ALT, and we can look at them as well. So just just so as people are aware, it's not that simple, you know. The oxide chemistry, even the oxide chemistry, you know, if you bring in a... So that was the, the reaction with water. If you bring in an oxidizing agent itself, like uh, ozone or oxygen plasma, then you get a whole lot of interesting chemistry happening at the surface as the ligands are burnt burnt away by the oxidizing agent. So, you know, water isn't an oxidizing agent. It's a Lewis acid base reagent, uh, whereas these oxidizing agents have quite a different chemistry. So that's, that's like making redox chemistry happen at the surface. And if you understand redox chemistry, you can do things like metal ALD. So in metal ALD, your co-reagent is an electron. You bring in a metal that's a cation, you need an electron to turn it into a metal that is neutral and is metallic. So it's a really very exotic form of ALD. It's it's not ALD between, say, aluminium and oxygen. It's like ALD between a metal and an electron. So you need a source of electrons. So there's there's lots of interesting... You know, we have the whole periodic table, and we'd love to deposit every single element and every single compound. But the chemistry gets very complicated very quickly. So uh, th- there's lots of interesting stuff out there. So just, just for... You know, just to bear in mind that it's not always simple oxides, it's not always simple acid-based chemistry.
0: So just uh, as an example, what is one of the most complicated simulation processes that you encountered? Probably copper metal.
1: Uh, We we did a big project on copper metal with two students working on it for their PhDs, and it's... uh, It's a real multi-step process the way the copper precursor comes down onto a metal surface and it starts to interact with the metal surface shares electrons and it starts the ligands start to peel away from it and they become more loosely bound and they then start to hop off onto the metal surface and then uh, the co-reagent can come in and exchange ligands uh, it was very complicated trying to understand copper metal. And where do the electrons come from? And is the process self-limiting? All these questions that you need in ALD. You know, um, is there? Does it happen at low enough temperatures? Could we could we simulate that? Uh, is it self-limiting? How about impurities? Because some metal processes you get impurities. Some metal processes don't work, and you get an oxide. You want a uh, conducting metal, and you end up with an insulating oxide, like, say, copper oxide or copper nitraters. So uh, that was a really tricky set of calculations.
0: And do you have, uh, like, a deposited example of that process, or is it was just um, a simulation problem and it never translated into, the like, but real life, but, uh, like, a real deposition?
1: Yeah, we were... Focusing on a real deposition from the literature. Okay. uh, So that's worked? uh, To an extent, yeah. It's it's used a zinc co-reagent, diethyl zinc, and that did tend to form copper-zinc alloy. One of our aims was to find out why that happened and how you could avoid that. So this was a project in collaboration with Intel in the U.S. They were and probably still are interested in depositing metals, particularly copper very thin film form so uh, yeah it was a nice project but it was very
0: complicated in the end so this would be the kind of the simulation coming to help the experimental people to actually understand what's going on because you can see that you put this 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 inside the reactor and then you have that coming out and you can make your old experiment of what comes out so you know what it is but you don't cannot really understand uh, why that is. Yeah, exactly. So So filling in those missing steps
1: between the chemicals that you put in and the products that you get out. uh, That's sort of, that's part of the value of simulation. I mean, that's what we're hoping for really. In general, there's kind of a gap because you have lots of really skilled chemists who can design almost any chemical. And they just say, Look, tell me the chemical and I'll make it. So they're brilliant. But then on the other hand, you have uh, process engineers or material scientists in industry, and they say, I'd like to deposit copper two nanometers thick in a thin film morphology without any islanding. Please give me the chemical to do that. You know? And there's this gap in between the two because. We don't know enough about the chemistry of how a particular chemical leads to a particular film or a particular morphology or properties. So we're trying to bridge that gap with simulation. We're trying to say when you have this chemical with these ligands, this is how it operates and
0: this is the sort of film you get. So now we spoke a bit about the chemistry that happens and what we can see with the simulation but Something that I wanted to ask is, uh, how do you actually do this in the program? Like, do you build your own code? Is the code sourced from somewhere else? Or how do you... Well, let's say, how where were you doing before before when you were in, in Tindal in the research part?
1: Yes, yeah, so there are lots of codes out there and there's no need to build your own code. Um, in principle, you could. What we're doing is solving the Schrodinger equation. So the Schrodinger equation... Uh, describes how the electrons move atomic system. Uh, atoms consist of nuclei and electrons. And the electrons move really fast, and they're really light, which means you have to use quantum mechanics to describe them, and that makes it really tricky. So the Schrodinger equation is the equation we have to solve to find the motion of the electrons. And then you can also use it for the motion of the nuclei, but generally we just use Newton's laws for the motion of the nuclei. So that's, that's not so problematic. And... Uh, So you could write your own code to solve the Schrodinger equation. That's more than doable. But really what we do is we build on all the coding that people have done down through the years since the 60s, 70s. And then there was a lot of work in the 80s and 90s in really developing large and well-optimized high-performance codes that could run on supercomputers. And most of those codes have lived on and have been developed and improved. And there's Probably a dozen that are in common use um, or maybe more, maybe 20 or 30, uh, but probably the most popular ones are maybe around a dozen. and they do different things. Each one has its own kind of niche and does something's better and something's worse. So uh, certainly I always worked with codes that had been developed by other people. And uh, now in Schrodinger, I'm using the codes that are part of the Schrodinger suite. So we have a gas phase. Um, code called Jaguar, and we have an interface to the solid phase code called Quantum Espresso. So that's a freeware code, but the Schrodinger software includes a nice interface to it. Um, So basically these codes solve the Schrodinger equation. Um, You need to define how the electrons are going to be represented. That's called a basis set. Uh, It's kind of like the skeleton that you're going to hang the electrons on. Um, and that determines the approach that you're going to take. So for molecules, we use uh, a certain basis set, certain functions. They're called atomic-centered functions. Whereas for solid, we use extended functions, um, sine waves or cos waves, because, of course, a solid extends, well, in our model to infinity, and a sine wave and a cos wave has all these oscillations going on to infinity. So those are really, that's the two big separate types of models, gas phase models and condensed phase models and you choose one or the other and that determines which code you choose like i say there's a whole range of codes out there some of them are freeware some of them you pay for the performance of the codes obviously can differ uh, one factor is do they have a good manual do they have good online tutorials do they have an active um, forum where you can learn from other people about how to use the code and I suppose, are you accustomed to them? Um, maybe the main thing is that people keep using the code that they know. They just put up with its quirks and so they get to know all its little bugs and features and they end up just just living with it, imperfect as it may be, because they know how to use it and it's easy just to keep using the same code. So that's, those are really the
0: main variables. Okay, so uh, this... Uh before we, we move to more like practical use of the code, there, there is one thing that if you are not uh, familiar with like simulation in science and in technology, what this is actually, uh, what is done when you actually do simulation, it's now, okay, I know I'm going to say in a simple way, then you can add something that knowing much better than me, but basically it's not something that you just buy some software where well you can okay you buy a software but it's not that you just okay I want to simulate this 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 you put them here press a button you get the results you want problem solved there is a lot of work that be, that is done behind to actually make the code to do what you really want to do because if you do uh like a master thesis on a reaction that happens in in an ALD cycle for example it takes months to actually make the final results that it's actually looking decent. So very quickly, how do you approach a problem that you you know what you want to or what you expect, the result to be, but how do you approach it from the beginning? Well, the codes are mature, so
1: um, I, I disagree with you a little bit. You can sit down at a computer, turn on the software and get a result. You can follow a tutorial or... You know, it's, it's straightforward that way. And most people would have done practicals like this. I mean, computer-based practicals uh, while they were undergraduates, maybe in a chemistry course or a physics course or materials in university. So, you know, you can do calculations in an afternoon in a practical session. Um, obviously, you need a lot of guidance. But th- you could say the same of lots of other areas of science. You know, you can sit down at an instrument and someone can show you how to use it and within a few minutes or hours you're, you're able to use it. But it's just whether you're going to use it to find the particular tricky question that you want to, that's where the skill comes in. So yeah, like any other instrument in science, the more experience the better and it can help if you have you know, six months, a year, or a couple of years experience so typically, students doing computational science do it alone, and become expert at it. Now, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I think it'd be better if we had more people doing both experiment and theory. But you do need to devote a good bit of time to the theory. And as much as anything, it's the background theory as well as the computational methods. Anyone can turn on the computer and run it and get a result out. But you need to know whether you can trust that result. And that's means understanding the theory to some extent. But just to sort of, so as people have an idea in their head what you're doing, um, you want to know how the atoms behave. So you need to have a three-dimensional representation of the atoms. So you put each atom that you're interested in, uh, interested in uh, you put it at a point in space. So you give it an X, a Y, and a Z coordinate. That's where the atoms are. And that's how you start off your simulation, by drawing atoms at certain points in space. And you obviously can do this in a nice um, computer interface. and The atoms are all nice bright colours. So you place your atoms in space. And then you say how many electrons there are and how the electrons are going to be represented, this basis set thing that I mentioned. And then you choose the methods that you're going to use. The method we use is density functional theory. That's just its name. It's, it's to do with computing the electron density, so that's where it gets its name from. And uh, a few more bits and bobs to make the calculation work right. Uh, you generally use sort of ready-made settings if all is going well. And then you start the calculation going. And at the end of the calculation, the computer will tell you where the electrons are what their energy is. And they, you can even then keep going and find out how the atoms will move or what the most stable position for the atoms are. And even further on from that, you can find out about chemical reactions and then all manners of properties, like mechanical properties and optical properties. And nearly every property can be derived from the wave function, and that's what you're computing, the electronic wave function. So it's a really powerful method, but it, the start is very simple. The start is just putting those atoms at points in space and selecting your method. So so yeah, um, yeah you need to be an expert, but yeah, you can get started quite simply. As a non expression because the methods are so mature
0: already. And uh, so you said that you have, okay, you measure, not do you measure, do you simulate uh, the atom and the electrons, how they, they interact with each other? How much do you have to approximate or how big are your systems? So, and what is the relation between given a normal amount of simulation time that you have? You cannot just use a year of computing power. That doesn't make any sense. But in a normal simulation time, the approximation you have to make compared to how much you want to simulate.
1: Yes, that's a good question. Um, For for These type of simulations that I've just sketched out, we can do about a thousand atoms, which means a chunk of material about one nanometer by one nanometer by one nanometer, which is not very big for your average experiment. Um, This this is for doing these kind of density functional theory calculations, so the the quantum mechanics, solving the quantum mechanics at a reasonably high level. It's not perfect, but it's a reasonable level. And we're limited to, yeah, a few hundred or maybe a thousand atoms. The problem is if if you double the size of the system, the computer time goes up by a factor of 8 or even 16. So you very quickly hit a limit, you know, if if doing five hundred atoms takes you a week of computer time, then doing a thousand atoms already takes you eight weeks of computer time and very soon it becomes just improbable
0: and impractical. And again, this is not a computer that you have in your home. These are supercomputer clusters that are made just to do that. That's what they do all the time. And they are just basically a big room full of CPUs that keep running numbers that you give them so it's a the scale of a week of computer calculation is yeah it might be kind of weird for some people to understand really the scale of this like what kind of computer power do you really need yeah um,
1: 10 20 years ago you would have been right that these calculations are totally out of uh, the 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 grasp of your average person. But now you can quite easily buy a a desktop computer with eight CPUs, 16 CPUs, 32 CPUs in it. That's really not that expensive. Uh, And you can run really large calculations on those computers. Even your laptop. I routinely run things on my laptop here. Um, I'd only use one of the CPUs, but I can do small molecules on my laptop uh, turns around quite quickly maybe i leave it running overnight and the molecules are finished in the morning so it's very doable now um depending on the scale yeah so so for for a real big research project you do need the scale you're going to have to run hundreds of systems you want a quick turnaround you don't want to be waiting a week for uh, results to come back so yeah for for kind of professional research level we do use these big supercomputers and material science is one of the big users of high performance computing worldwide uh, computer science computational chemistry condensed matter physics um, they will be up there with probably meteorology and earth sciences and yeah, so there are, there are supercomputing centers in most countries, like some un- universities have a big computer, and then most countries have a supercomputer as well where you can get a CPU time. And you log in remotely, launch the jobs, leave them there. You leave them there in the queue, and eventually they run. And maybe you log in the next day, and your jobs have run, or maybe it takes a bit longer. So generally, the, the, I find the, the pain threshold is, is a week. It's great if a job runs overnight or is finished in a day. That's good. That's a sort of, a, you can do some sensible work. But if something is taking longer than a week, oh, it's a bit painful. And if it crashes and you have to do it again, that's another week. Uh, it's a real big investment of time if it's that long. So I always try to run my jobs in the sort of one or two day range. And that then dictates the size of system I can look at. So I have to make a lot of approximations. Make a nice small system with only if you know a few hundred atoms maybe up to a thousand atoms and that's probably what the biggest approximation that we make we're trying to simulate a big complicated system like a surface with these complicated chemicals on it and we only have a thousand atoms to play with so that that requires some trickery and maybe uh, that's yeah. That's the most severe approximation. The quantum mechanics is only solved approximately, but we're, we're well acquainted with the problems there. And really, it's a very good solution for the quantum mechanics. But the main problem is this: this limit, how many atoms we can
0: use. So now I have this idea of since I'm not doing simulation myself, but now getting a bit the image, I have your like low level, let's say few. 100 atoms, uh, DFT calculation, where I can try to understand really uh, the small scale chemistry that's going on, like how really the groups are bonding, how uh, really the atom interacts at, uh, at, let's say, electron level. And maybe from there I can get some ideas how this reaction works, and then I can extrapolate some well numbers or some ideas that, okay, this behaving this way, and then I can make approximation since I know how this works more or less, and then I know how this other thing work, and then I make more approximation and move to a bigger system. And so we, for now, we only spoke about this, or DFT. but what if I want to simulate a big system? I want to simulate several square centimeter of surface. Yeah, so,
1: obviously there are different ways of doing simulations. Um, So we're limited with quantum mechanics. We won't be able to do quantum mechanical simulations of really large systems. Uh, But there are other approximations we can use. Um, So there's a whole hierarchy of simulation approaches to looking at materials, materials properties, and to an extent looking at chemistry. So if you move to a larger scale away from quantum mechanics, you can do millions of atoms with what's called molecular mechanics. Tens of thousands, up to maybe a million atoms. Um, What we do there is we say each atom is connected to the other with a spring, basically, and we know how stiff that spring is. Um, To find out the stiffness, we look at experimental data or some of these quantum chemical calculations. Uh, But basically, once we've worked out how stiff the spring is, we just put a fixed stiffness, and that spring then connects those two atoms. And that's a very straightforward thing to compute. You use Hooke's law from uh, way back many centuries ago. You can very quickly solve this system of lots of atoms connected with springs. So the, the bond is, is represented by that spring. The atoms can vibrate and move and move around the place. And that's exactly what they're doing when they get thermal energy and when uh, when you heat a system. So this is very powerful. You can look at really large systems. So it's used routinely for biological systems, um, for pharmaceuticals, for looking at proteins, and then for looking at large, large surfaces. Uh, Maybe not the centimetre scale that you mentioned there, but more like the micron scale. And you can look at things for longer periods of time. You can see how things happen over nanoseconds even, which sounds like a short period of time, but really a lot of action happens in one nanosecond. so uh, Schrödinger offers software that does molecular mechanics. It's at a really high level. And this is actually the history of the Schrödinger company because it started off as a company for helping out with pharmaceuticals, and drug discovery, and a lot of success in that. So that's what Schrödinger has been doing for most of its 20 or 30 year history. And the material science is a relatively new thing because we can't use those molecular mechanics systems so much um, the, the problem is that we're often looking at atoms where we don't know this, how strong the springs are, or where the springs change as time goes on. You know, if you have a chemical reaction and a bond breaks, then suddenly there's no spring anymore. So the molecular mechanics approach isn't so good at looking at bonds forming or bonds breaking. That's why it's kind of limited for looking at the, the reaction chemistry. But as long as you've no reaction chemistry taking place, then this is a great way to look at really big systems. So if you had a model of a, a film on a surface, or maybe an organic layer or something, wanted to know how it behaves over long periods, that kind of mechanics is the way. And there are higher-level approaches as well, where you don't look at atoms at all. You look at chunks of material, this is kind of the engineer's approach where you divide up your system into what's called elements. Maybe they're little cubes or little polyhedra. And each element has a fixed set of properties, uh, materials properties that you know from experiment, maybe how compressible it is or how it responds to temperature or how viscous it is. And then you put together all these elements and you form your object. So your object could be anything. It could be an aircraft, could be a car, uh, it could be In the, the arteries in the body. Um, any body, any object, you divide it up into these little elements and you know the materials properties for the elements. And then again, you solve the equations for all the elements together. So you're using computer power to look at, you know, millions and millions of elements that you could never solve with pencil or paper. And that's where the advantage of the simulations come in. You see unusual behavior emerging because these millions of elements are interacting together. So that's finite element type simulation thermal type simulation, and that can lead you right up to the centimeter scale and the meter scale. So there's a whole hierarchy of simulation methods and for some of them you need to know a lot of information but then you can look at very large systems and then down to the quantum mechanical level you basically don't need to know the materials
0: properties because you're going to find them out with the quantum mechanics. And going back now uh, after we, now we know kind of the all simulation possibility we have and going back to ald uh i've contributed with another group in alto uh, to do a simulation of the gas flow of the well precursor and, and then flushing and all the one cycle what happens to the gas flow in into the reactor chamber so it's a very high scale because it's the whole chamber and then we were assuming that the flow goes in a certain way, that is all simulated by the software. And of course, we're not speaking about molecule at all at this point. But then when the flow was reaching the surface, we were saying, okay, where it reaches, we gave a certain threshold of how much of this simulated flow reaches surface. And then after that threshold, we have a reaction and the film is there. So we could kind of map the wafer where the gas was going and where the growth was supposed to happen. And that is a really like big scale approach, and it's extremely approximated. And going lower with the scale, we could have better in, uh, indication of when can we say that the reaction happens. Uh, What can you now? I mean, what you as a simulation person, what can you say to experimental person? Here, I found out this thing about the chemistry. How can you use it in the real world? This is more like how to end the discussion since again we are getting near the one hour, it's always easy to get there. Not an easy question. Let's see what we can get out of it.
1: Yeah, um, it's so it's, it's a good approach that you were saying, you know. Um, so it's a nice example of a finite element simulation. You you look at the gas at each point in the reactor. The gas has a pressure and a temperature and other characteristics. And each of those elements interacts with one another and you see how the gas flows through the reactor. You see the effect of temperature. You see the flow of heat through the reactor, how the gases come in and go out. It's really important to do that kind of simulation. And and the equipment companies, of course, do that all the time, so as they make sure their reactors are working efficiently. Uh, But as you said, the the, the problem is what happens when that gas hits the surface? Does it react? Does a film form? And like you said, you could put in an approximate kind of a rule of thumb, let's say 20% of the time, the chemical leads to the formation of a little chunk of film. But that's isn't really going to give you the insight that you want, because how does that number depend on pressure or temperature or gas velocity? Uh, those are the kind of things you want to know. As I change things in the reactor, what happens to the film? Does it become non-uniform, or does it, do impurities grow, or does the growth rate change? And if you're just using an empirical, well, let's say it's 20% kind of rule of thumb, you don't know that. You don't know how all these uh, parameters affect the film growth. For that, you need to look at the chemistry step by step and how the chemistry depends on the pressure and the temperature and all these things. Because, well, For example, if the temperature, some reactions are kind of uh, they're slow, and then you get to a certain temperature, you heat it up, and suddenly the reaction turns on. That's what tends to happen. You overcome one of these kinetic barriers, and the reaction starts to happen and a new reaction path is opened up and the film starts to grow in this new way. So you can have quite abrupt changes in behaviour as you move from one temperature regime to another. And pressure can also have effects like that. So it can be very complicated and it's, it's not an easy... So this is the, the whole area of multi-scale simulation where you try to link together two different simulation scales. On one hand, the reactor scale or the feature scale. And on the other hand, the atomic scale, the chemistry. And it's, it's a big area of research, multi-scale simulation. Mostly it's done in a, in a fairly loosely coupled way. Rarely do you get genuine feedback from one length scale to another um, in a dynamic and properly coupled fashion, because that's very hard and very computationally demanding. Um, you could imagine that the fluid flow simulation would start calling density functional simulation and that would run and it would deliver its result back to the fluid flow simulation which would then update the pressure of the byproducts it, it, it would get very demanding very quickly so so these things have been done i mean the first vers- the first project i did in tyndall was actually uh, an eu project on developing a multi-scale model for ald and that was that started back in 2001 and we did quite a good job it was a, a loosely coupled system uh, but since then Similar things. People have been developing it further. Uh, It's still really an open question of how to do this well. It's very demanding computationally, and even many of the concepts aren't out there yet for how to do it. So um, it's a nice, nice look to the future of the challenges that we still face of how to do simulations.
0: Yeah, and this comes from both the fact that ALD, well, it's not a new technique, but has been of big uh, importance in the last maybe 10 to 15 years while was invented already in the 70s. So the research really got much bigger at this in the last years. And simulation always comes at later in the sense that you do it. experiment it first, see if something works, and then you really want to understand what's going on. And that takes a long time. And then also computer power really developed also that in the last maybe 20 to 30 years now we have much much higher power compared to even 10 years ago so this might be a problem that is not solved because you cannot solve this but it's going to improve certainly in the in the next years
1: that's one of the one of the great things about simulation is that you can always depend on computer power improving so if we can't do it this year, maybe we just
0: need to wait, so we can do it next year
1: or the year after.
0: Yeah, if you have to wait a week this year, you might wait half a week next year and then a day in three years. And what it's now says that okay, this is impossible, it's just completely crazy. It might be totally fine in five years. It's like, yeah, we run it in one day. And so maybe we will need to we'll need to see what's will going to happen in the future and i feel like that we spoke for almost an hour and we really just scratched the surface of what it's really done in this in this field because of course we kind of went through all the all that is needed and what the possibilities are and i think that is quite fine for now because uh, maybe not everybody's in like really deep into the knowledge of the simulation, and this might be a good general view on that.